0: Would God my passion drove me to slaughter you and eat you raw, you've caused such agony to me. No man exists who could defend you from the carrion pack, not if they gave to me ten times your ransom, not if Priam, son of Dardanos, told them to buy you for your weight in gold. You'll have no bed of death, nor will you be laid out and mourned by her who gave you birth. Dogs and birds will have you, every scrap. Achilles' final words to Hector from the 22nd book of the Iliad. Hello and welcome to the Western Traditions Podcast. My name is Rob Paxton, and this is the sixth episode of an ongoing podcast series called The Greek Sun. I previously produced 25 episodes about the prehistoric world in the ancient Near East. With this episode, I will review the Trojan War, one of the most significant events in the history of Ancient Greece, even though it may not have actually happened. Regardless, the stories of this war, fictional or not, formed and moved Greek culture for over a thousand years. Now as we progress through the Greek traditions, we will see that even into classical times and beyond. The stories of the Trojan War and its heroes will shape the thought and animate the spirits of this great historic people. Great thinkers such as Socrates will speak often of Trojan War heroes such as Achilles, and leaders like Alexander the Great will be be moved to emulate such heroes. We will not be able to understand what moved these great men without also understanding their own myths. It would be like trying to understand medieval Europe without knowing something about Christianity. Therefore, the next few episodes will discuss the Trojan War and the two greatest works that were produced about it and about its dreadful aftermath, the Iliad and the Odyssey. Now, you may have already read the Iliad or the Odyssey yourself, perhaps in school, but I bet that you are unaware of the true significance of these texts in the Greek heart and soul. In addition to supplying examples of the deeds and thoughts of famous Greek heroes for posterity, these texts came to be viewed with religious significance Their passages examined and interpreted much like Bible verses are examined and interpreted today by believers in order to find meaning in life and to unravel the mysteries of existence. Now, the events of the Trojan War were, in the Greek soul, fundamental matters. Think of how we have previously seen in the mythology of various other peoples how one god succeeded another in primacy or importance in a particular culture over time. Just so, might you see the Trojan War succeeding all prior myth for the Greeks. First, it was the stories of Uranus, the sky god, who was supreme for them. Then it was Cronus, who was most important. And then it was Zeus, after him. But then, in some fashion, the Trojan War itself became the primary story through which Greeks found meaning in life. Yes, Zeus and the other gods figure in the story of the war, but the war itself, and its recounting through the generations, becomes almost a god of its own. And in this process, the Iliad and the Odyssey become mystical texts, not just historical narratives. The words used in Homer's lines become imbued with a magical power, just as Christians or Jews might view recitation of particular passages from the Bible as having a supernatural effect. The Iliad and the Odyssey acquired the same power in the Greek soul as the Bible had for later Jews and Christians, and the Trojan War was the primal event which generated these books. Now, though, before we we begin the study of that war, I wanted to remind you of ways to learn more about all the topics that I introduce in these episodes. You can go to my website at western-traditions.org, that's western-traditions.org, and find transcripts of the episodes, as well as maps, pictures, and book recommendations. While you're there, you can comment on the episodes and ask questions. And you can also help support the podcast by contributing through PayPal or Patreon. All that said, let's get on with the Trojan War. Many people have at least heard of the Trojan War, and if you are listening to this podcast, it's a good bet that you are already somewhat familiar with some of the major players. Nevertheless, I will try to introduce each element of this podcast as if the listener was almost entirely unfamiliar with the subject. Now, many books and plays were written about the Trojan War. The most famous were probably the Iliad and the Odyssey. The former work describes a central event of the war, but not the entirety of it, and the latter book, the Odyssey... Much more familiar perhaps to the modern public, describes in detail the aftermath of the war for one particular survivor, as well as giving us some idea of how other Greek warriors fared upon returning home after so long away. To understand how significant all of this was for the Greeks, both the war and these two books about the war, it might help to compare them to the Bible and the events described therein. For the ancient Greek, the Trojan War was what the Exodus represented for the Jews in terms of forming their character, providing examples, and instructing children, especially young boys, in the do's and don'ts of life. Or think of the life of Jesus and the Gospels for Christians. That is what the Trojan War was for the ancient Greeks. And the Iliad and the Odyssey were their Torah, their Gospel. They were holy books depicting a time when the gods still interacted directly with men and women when the gods still spoke to them and even appeared before them, albeit typically in a disguise of some sort. Now, the Trojan War occupies a mysterious region of our past, that twilight zone between absolute prehistory and actual historical times. As with many of the other tales that have come down to us from our ancestors from this period in human history, the story of the Trojan War is part archaeology and part legend, a story of both gods and men, Archaeology now confirms some elements of the story. Our rational minds deny the possibility of other elements. The story begins with a frivolous dispute between the gods, the results of which will unleash a destructive war that lasts a decade and cripples human society in the Aegean Sea, wrecking a once sound and lasting political and economic relationship between the great powers of the ancient world. As the story goes, there was a grand wedding between Peleus and Thetis, Peleus was a king in Thessaly, a land in northern Greece, and Thetis was a nerad, or a sea nymph, one of those many semi divine creatures of wood, water, or air that populated the ancient Greek world and mind. The gods themselves came to this wedding. However, one among the gods, Eris, the goddess of discord, was naturally, given her inclinations, not invited. So she crashed the wedding, and she brought with her a special gift a golden apple with a dedication inscribed on it. It said simply, for the fairest. Hera, Aphrodite, and Athena quarreled as to who, therefore, deserved this apple dedicated to the most beautiful goddess present. They chose a young and handsome prince, Paris, son of King Priam of the city of Troy, to select the most beautiful of the three. Each of the three goddesses offered the young man a prize for choosing her. Hera offered power. Athena, wisdom, and Aphrodite, love. Paris designated Aphrodite as the most beautiful. He awarded her the apple, and she gave to him his reward, love. Now Aphrodite, the goddess of love, was not known to treasure stability in any situation, preferring to abandon herself to passion at any given moment, hence her many infidelities to her long-suffering husband Hephaestus, the god of the forge. So she caused Helen, the beautiful daughter of Zeus and Leda, to fall in love with Paris, There was just one problem with this otherwise happy arrangement. Helen was already married to Menelaus, the king of Sparta. After Paris and Helen naturally elope to Troy, the gods take sides. Hera and Athena spur Menelaus and his brother Agamemnon, Agamemnon, king of Mycenae, to form a coalition of Greek kings to wage war against the city of Troy until Helen is returned and the aggrieved cuckold Menelaus repaid for his suffering. And, of course, this is payback for the insult Paris leveled against these two goddesses by choosing Aphrodite. In light of the archaeology of the last couple of centuries, there's a lot of interesting stuff just in this introduction to the Trojan War, particularly Agamemnon's appearance as the king of Mycenae. This places the tale sometime in the mid-2nd century BC, when Mycenae still existed, and this stirs even today a great deal of conversation about the meaning of this story. Is this a story from the Mycenaeans passed down to the later Greeks, or is it a reimagining of Mycenaean times by Greeks living in the Dark Ages in the wake of the Bronze Age collapse? And is this massive ten-year war between the nation-states of the Aegean Sea, is it the cause of the Bronze Age collapse, or is it a result of the collapse? I explained in earlier episodes how the Bronze Age came to a sudden end with the arrival of invaders in the eastern Mediterranean, often called the Sea Peoples. Are Agamemnon and Menelaus the last kings of Mycenae, or are they the first kings of the warlike invaders who overthrew the Mycenaeans? It would certainly make sense that the Trojan War, draining the resources of so many city-states over the course of ten years, occupying and or killing off massive numbers of their able-bodied men during that time, and ultimately destroying a center of trade like Troy, it would make sense that this event might have brought down the political and social order of the period. Troy was situated at the western mouth of the Dardanelles Strait, a narrow body of water connecting the Mediterranean to the Black Sea. Like Constantinople of later time, this would have made the city a nexus for trade in the entire region. Its besiegement and eventual destruction could not have had a positive impact on the regional economy. But would have the leaders of these surrounding realms, such as Mycenae, would would they have destroyed the city and their own social orders for the sake of one woman? Or was something more at play here? Is the story of Helen a popular explanation for a war that was really about resources or economic advantage? Or perhaps Agamemnon and Menelaus were not Mycenaeans. Perhaps they were leaders of the Sea Peoples, the invaders who wrecked societies from Greece to Egypt to Canaan sometime during the late 2nd millennium BC. There is evidence for this latter possibility. I described the destruction caused by the Sea Peoples in the episodes of the last series, Egyptian records named the specific groups or tribes of sea peoples that attacked them at this time. Among them are names that sound a lot like those that Homer gives to the Greeks that besieged the city of Troy. Homer calls them, among other things, Danaans, that's D-A-N-A-A-N-S, and he also calls them Achaeans, A-C-H-A-E-A-N-S. And the Egyptians and others who suffered the attacks of the sea peoples use similar words to name the tribes of these assailants. But that might only mean that the Mycenaeans, in their separate tribes, after their society fell apart, became raiders and pirates out of necessity, and thus became the terrible sea peoples of the Bronze Age Collapse. Regardless, we're getting away from this story and digressing into historical speculation. It's fun, but it also detracts from our goal of discovering our Western traditions. We seek now the culture of ancient Greece, not its archaeological underpinnings. However, this is a topic worth pursuing, and there are a lot of great books and videos about the matter. I will provide some links on the website at western-traditions.org. Again, that's western-traditions.org. So anyway, the war is kicked off. Paris has stolen away with Menelaus's bride to Troy, a city that is on the opposite shore of the Aegean, technically an Asian city in what would be today the country of Turkey. And the kings of Greece and the West, in Europe, join in an alliance to revenge the wrong committed against one of their number. Now, the story of this war, especially the events of the war as recounted in the Iliad, which we will cover in the next episode, this story will use a lot of names. There are many characters in this tragedy known as the Trojan War. So, in the next segment, I will introduce the players, the actors on this stage that we have set up on the shores of northwestern Anatolia, where the city of Troy awaits the coming war. The gods, of course, we already know. Instead of describing them, let me merely describe which side they chose in the long battle for the walls of Troy. Allied with the Achaean cause, with the Greeks, of course, were Hera and Athena, as they were the offended parties after Paris selected Aphrodite as the most fair. Standing with them was also the god of the sea, Poseidon. Evidence of their support is seen in the passages of the Iliad, in which they lobby for the Achaeans both separately and together before Zeus who has taken no definitive side yet. The Trojans are represented in these judicial maneuverings before the king of the gods by Aphrodite, of course, as she was the one who received Paris's appreciation, and by Apollo and Ares. The latter god, Ares, actually switches sides during the events of the Iliad, which occur rather late in the war. Now, Ares, the god of war, is Often depicted as the lover of Aphrodite, he interestingly does not seem to have much sway over the battlefield, not as much as you might expect, and this may be because Athena, on the Greek side, is also a war goddess. Athena's propensity for combat is often overlooked in traditional school depictions of her, in which she is usually just quickly described as a goddess of wisdom and then discarded in order to describe other gods. This is odd, because Athena is a very fundamental deity for the Greeks, and her aid as an intercessor may have been more sought after than many other gods. I have also spoken before in this podcast about the depiction of Ares as a less than admirable figure in Homer's work. Probably most people, when they think of a god of war, imagine some dread titan, armed with a heavy blade, slick with blood, the smoke of battlefield ruin rising into the sky behind him. Certainly for the Romans, as we will see when we come to their period in history, certainly the Romans will depict their version of Ares, their Mars, god of war, as such a fearsome deity. Not so for the Greeks, or not so for the surviving literature anyway. Not so for Homer. As we will see in the episode that follows this one about the Iliad, Ares actually goes into battle after a a Greek hero, Diomedes, injures Aphrodite, goddess of love, and Ares sometimes lover. Ares' onslaught is awesome, but he is countered by Athena in the battle, who supports Diomedes. Ares is injured by Diomedes' spear throw and flees the battlefield. He then goes running to Zeus, but we will come to that drama soon. Anyway, let's get on with the dramatis personae of the Trojan War. Now we come to the men and women of this Greek tragedy. We have already met Paris, the prince from Troy. In popular imagination, he was always he's always a young man full of boyish impetuousness and passionate for Helen, for whom he refuses to give up even when his suffering people and comrades in the war suggest the possibility in order to call a truce. However, the timeline of this matter should be considered when imagining Paris. Remember how Paris was at a wedding where the three goddesses asked him to choose the most fair among them? Well, that wedding was the marriage of Peleus and Thetis, and these two were the parents of Achilles, who fights in the Trojan War and figures prominently in the Iliad. Well, Achilles was already a warrior of renown when he went off to fight in the Trojan War, and the war lasts 10 years. In fact, the Iliad occurs over the course of just several days in the ninth year of the war. So, technically, Achilles, presumably not born before the already mentioned wedding, would possibly be 30 years old or even older during the Iliad, in which case some 30 years would have passed since that wedding, and therefore Paris would be well into middle age. Difficult timelines like this are a part of many Greek myths. If you pay close attention, you might notice how many characters seem to overlap their timelines impossibly. King Creon of Thebes, for instance, figures in the tale of Oedipus, but he is also seen in the stories of many mythical heroes who may or may not inhabit the same era as Oedipus. There is a figure in Homer's works, Tiresias, a prophet, who also appears in stories about Heracles and about Oedipus, suggesting a lifespan of several generations. So, when we begin to look too closely at the events of the Trojan War, as well as many other mythical stories as remembered by the Greeks, we should probably keep in mind the same rules that we might unconsciously apply today when watching, let's say, a science fiction film, a zombie movie perhaps. As soon as you start to notice plot holes, you just have to remind yourself that dead people are walking around on screen, and maybe you should just relax and enjoy the show. Anyway, back to Paris. Paris is the son of Priam, king of Troy, a wise old man, much saddened by the ways that the actions of his son have brought suffering on the people of Troy. And Paris has an older brother, Hector. Hector is the responsible brother, the kind who doesn't run off with the wives of other men. We will hear much more about this man in the Iliad. He is probably Troy's greatest warrior. There are other sons of King Priam and other heroes on the Trojan side of the war. We will hear more about them as well in the Iliad. Among them all is Helen, of course. She does not figure in the battles, but she will make appearances in both the Iliad and the Odyssey. She provides a unique eye inside the Trojan ranks. Her perspective gives us a window into the Trojan world during this time of war. Indeed, one interesting thing about the Iliad is that, though it is written from the Greek point of view, it contains many passages which speak of the doomed Trojans with quite a bit of sympathy. Now, as for the Greeks, Agamemnon was their leader. There were many kings allied together to form the Greek army, but the chief of these kings was Agamemnon. In the original Greek language, there is a verbal distinction made between Agamemnon and the other kings. Agamemnon was referred to as Anax that's A-N-A-X. The word means king. The other kings were known as Basilius. Odysseus, for example, was a Basilius over Ithaca and some other islands. This word Basilius also means king. Typically then, in translation, Anax is rendered as high king, as a king ruling over other kings. Only Agamemnon and Priam, the king of Troy, are referred to this way in the Iliad. This term anax is a word descended from a Mycenaean word, wanax, wanax, meaning essentially the same thing. The application of the term to Agamemnon possibly reveals something about the origin of this tale. The Mycenaeans used this term to describe their kings, but after the Iliad, the term is not used to describe kings in Greek literature. Everyone is a basilius after this juncture in history. This certainly seems to suggest a close link, some sort, between the Iliad and the ancient Mycenaean culture. Now, Agamemnon was the leader of the army, the high king, but he was not a dictator. He possessed a lot of influence, a lot of charisma, and had earned the respect of those who served under him in the army. In fact, one of the traits in all these kings that is found in the passages of the Iliad, which causes scholars to doubt that these figures were Mycenaeans, One trait is that their kings were all hands-on warriors. Agamemnon, high king though he was, Anax, engaged in direct battle with the enemy, fighting hand to hand, and his battle prowess was part of what sustained his position as overall leader. Thus, Agamemnon does not seem like the effete scion of an established royal family that would have been ruling at Mycenae for centuries. He does not seem like someone who has inherited the powers and duties of a king and grown up in wealth and comfort in a palace. No, Agamemnon seems much more like what we would imagine a king of invaders might be like. Like maybe the tribes that came into the Aegean and the Levant and wrecked the global order. Maybe more like what they would have looked like. Like how we might today imagine one of the barbarian kings that invaded Europe during the Roman era in the Middle Ages. But we cannot be sure. Who can say what the kings of Mycenae were really like? remember that they were originally a less-civilized people who took over the Minoan civilization in the centuries prior to the Bronze Age collapse. Perhaps, even a few centuries later, they retained their warlike inclinations and properties. Or perhaps Homer was recasting real historical figures to appear as he thought kings and warriors should appear during the period in which he wrote the poems, which would have been 300 years or more later sometime during the 9th or even 8th century BC. Future archeological discovery may reveal more someday about the nature of Mycenaean kings and culture, but such matters may also simply may remain mysterious forever. Now, Agamemnon was king of Mycenae, which is also called Argos. Hence, the soldiers of the Greek army are sometimes referred to, among other things, as Argives in the text of the Iliad. His brother Menelaus was king of Sparta, though this is the Sparta of the 2nd millennium BC, not the Sparta whose soldiers would defy the Persian army at Thermopylae. But this is not meant to diminish the bravery or vigor of the troops he led, only to distinguish them. Now, Menelaus was the aggrieved Cuckold, whose wife had run off with Paris to the city of Troy. He was also a powerful and respected warrior, like his older brother. Though he was neither the high king nor related to him, Achilles was probably the most famous of all the Greek heroes at Troy, He was the son of Peleus and Thetis, the couple who had married at the wedding which had started all the trouble. He led a body of chosen troops known as the Myrmidons, fierce warriors who lived for combat rather than a group of half-hearted conscripts. Achilles' interactions with Agamemnon underline the tenuous nature of command among this allied force. The two men are at odds at the start of the Iliad and Achilles, exercising his right as leader over his own men, withdraws them from operations unilaterally. Agamemnon may complain and exhort and even threaten, but ultimately he depends on cooperation from his many subordinate kings and he cannot simply order Achilles into combat. We cannot underline the importance of Achilles for the Greek mind too much. Interestingly, though he often seems the modern reader to be sort of a brash, overly emotional, and brutal man, he is generally well thought of by later Greeks, spoken of with admiration even in the pages of Plato's philosophical dialogues. But then again, it may also be common for people today, unfamiliar with Greek history, to think of many Greek writers and thinkers, like Plato and Aristotle, as being somewhat effete, distant from the physical troubles of the world leading refined lives of comfort amid the pristine marble columns of some Greek city like Athens, drinking wine and pairing words with one another. But nothing could be farther from the truth, and the admiration for Achilles makes much more sense when you get to know the Greeks better. Now, There is a terrible movie called 300 about the defense of the Spartans at Thermopylae. I won't engage in film criticism here here to explain why the movie is so terrible, but I will mention one line that demonstrates why the writer was, like many average Westerners, unfamiliar with ancient Greek culture, though he may have felt himself very learned in this area. A Spartan in the movie in between flexing his absurdly defined abdominal muscles, refers to the Athenians as boy lovers, and essentially makes them out to be weak and less manly. This is ridiculous on so many levels that I don't even know where to begin. The Spartans engaged openly in homosexuality, so it is definitely idiotic for a Spartan in the film to call the Athenians boy lovers. But his disrespect for the Athenians' military capabilities is also absurd, the Spartans had a great deal of respect for the warlike capacities of the Athenians, even if they thought themselves superior. And the Athenians would demonstrate their own superior superiority during the war, not only when they fought alongside the Spartans, but when they single-handedly defeated the Persians at the Battle of Marathon, and later, when they dominated the Greek world in the post-Persian War era. So we have to keep this in mind when we see Achilles. He is not a caricature. He not a buffoon in the Greek eyes. No, just like Heracles, they admire his strength and his bravery because they themselves were strong and brave, and they treasured these qualities in men. Socrates and his dialogue participants in the works of Plato, they were all veterans of a long, brutal war. More than one of the dialogues makes references to Socrates' valor in battle. So when the Greeks spoke of Achilles, even when philosophers spoke of him, they did so with great respect because they wished to emulate him in some fashion because his deeds inspired their own now this is not to say that all greeks were uncritical of achilles and all his words and deeds only that we must remember to try to view him through greek eyes and not our own to try to place him in the context of his time and place in the complexity and the turmoil of the trojan war and not compare his morals and actions to those acceptable in our own day now Most of the figures from the Trojan War, whom I will mention here, are kings, but one, Patroclus, is simply Achilles' lieutenant, or perhaps his Batman, his adjutant. Patroclus is the one who makes sure that Achilles' commands are carried out properly. Like all others in this list, he is also a great warrior. Patroclus, as we will see in the Iliad, is a tragic figure, but we'll get more into that in the next episode. And we cannot forget, of course, Odysseus, king of Ithaca and leader of a small company of men from that island. In addition to valor, Odysseus is renowned for being shrewd and cunning. The ruse of the Trojan horse is largely the idea of Odysseus, and it is this trick which leads to the downfall of Troy. The story of the Trojan horse, however, will not be related in this series of episodes, as it is, perhaps ironically, only found complete in the Aeneid, a story written by the Roman poet Virgil in Latin. At the beginning of the Roman Imperial period, then there was Ajax, son of Telamon. He was king of Salamis, a Greek island near Athens. A fabled warrior, Ajax trained alongside alongside Achilles as a youth, according to a legend, which says that both of them were trained in the arts of war by a centaur named Chiron. Ajax kills himself near the end of the war, after and partially in response to the death of Achilles. Ajax had a half-brother named Teucer, that's T-E-U-C-E-R, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, but there really isn't a way to pronounce correctly anything that has been translated from ancient Greek and then anglicized, but anyway, Teucer was skilled with the bow, and the Iliad notes several kills of his with the arrow in the course of the text. And there was also another Ajax among the Greek heroes. The aforementioned hero is usually distinguished as Ajax the son of Telamon, While this lesser Ajax, of whom I now speak, is just called Ajax in the Iliad, this lesser Ajax also comes to a tragic end. His life takes a downward turn after he rapes a Trojan princess during the sack of Troy. Scorned by by the other Greeks for this, he makes his way home secretly and in shame, but his ship is first sunk by the gods, and then, after he clings to a rock in the sea and curses them, the god Poseidon splits the rock and Ajax drowns in the middle of the endless empty sea. The Greeks needed more than ferocity and bravery to defeat the Trojans and endure the long siege. They needed wisdom as well. Some of this was provided by Nestor, an aged king from the Greek city-state of Pylos, who came to the war with his sons. They did the actual fighting, while Nestor led troops from his chariot. Nestor survives the war and figures prominently in the narratives of both the Iliad and the Odyssey. But I have skipped over perhaps one of the greatest Greek heroes besides Achilles, and probably the latter's rival for fame among the Greeks, especially in the pages of the Iliad. I speak now of Diomedes, and that's D-I-O-M-E-D-E-S. He kills and wounds several Trojan heroes during the course of the war and also injures both Aphrodite and Ares in combat, thus becoming one of the few mortals known to have physically injured a god. In the Odyssey, we will see just how much Athena cared for Odysseus, her favorite trickster, but she also loved Diomedes, who emulated his patroness, in that he was known not just for battlefield vigor, but also for his cunning and his wisdom. Diomedes' own return to his home, to his own kingdom, is exemplary of the general situation for most heroes returning from this war. (coughs) Gone ten years or more, the heroes return to realms that are now different, and accustomed to rule by regency or by usurpers. Diomedes himself is exiled from his home and flees to southern Italy, where he founds a new kingdom. It seems like few of the warriors and kings that returned from Troy came back to stable situations at home. The Odyssey tells not just of Odysseus's struggles in coming back home, but we also learn of several others, and numerous Greek stories, plays, and poems depict other men suffering political chaos, physical struggles, exile, and even death in the war's wake. Again, it certainly seems like the story of the Trojan War and the many tales that surround it, it seems like these accounts, once considered to be entirely fictional, may be interpretations of a very real political situation in the eastern Mediterranean sometime around 1200 BC, and it certainly seems to coincide with the arrival of the Sea Peoples and the sudden apocalyptic ending of the Bronze Age. I mentioned in a podcast from the last series about the Bronze Age Collapse, that a passage in the Odyssey appears to describe a solar eclipse, which would have happened in 1178 BC. That is perfect timing for the end of the Bronze Age and the arrival of the Sea Peoples. But was the explosion of the Sea Peoples onto the scene in the eastern Mediterranean at this time, was it a result of the political chaos described in the Odyssey, or was it the cause? We may never know. Iliad, in its second book, gives us a now-famous catalog of ships and captains that carry the Greek army to the shores of Anatolia. For a long time, the list was simply thought to be spurious, to be a fiction, unrealistically large and probably serving some now-unknown motive of the narrator. Modern scholarship finds the list to be much more interesting and revealing about ancient Greece, though there is no consensus as to what exactly the time period is that the catalog represents. Notably, the ships are grouped according to their region of origin. Now, the first group of all to be named is not that of Achilles, nor of Agamemnon, nor even of Diomedes or Menelaus. Nor is it the largest group, nor is it the Athenian group. No, the first group of ships mentioned is that of the Boeotians. Boeotia, and that's spelled B-O-E-O-T-I-A, and I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, Boeotia is a region of central Greece to the north of both Athens and Sparta, and it is home to Thebes, a city about which we will hear much more in the episodes to come. Now, not only is this Boeotian Boeotian fleet mentioned first, but it is distinct from descriptions of other fleets in that not only does it give the number of ships, there were 50, but we also learn in the text that each ship carried 120 men. Such detail is not provided for the other fleets, not even for the small fleet of Odysseus, which numbers just 12 ships at the start of the war. So the interesting point about this here is that Hesiod, the author of the Theogony, which I have referenced significantly in previous episodes, was from Boeotia. Now, no one thinks that Hesiod composed the Iliad or the Odyssey. The topics and the nature of those latter poems are as distinct as possible from the recognized works of Hesiod, Which are the Theogony, the Works and Days, the Shield of Heracles, and some other fragments. Homer's poems are epics, romantic poems with sweeping, beautiful descriptions and metaphors about the tragedy of war and the glory of men's bravery. Hesiod's works are didactic, moralistic, occasionally spiced up with an interesting phrasing here or there, but mostly interested in teaching others about proper beliefs and actions. But the poems of Hesiod and Homer bear many similarities in their lyrical construction. They are all written in the same kind of hexameter, meaning that each line of poetry has six beats in it, just as the works of Shakespeare are all written in pentameter with five beats. And the poems of both writers seem to draw on a similar body of traditions. So it would not be surprising to discover, with certainty, that Homer was a Boeotian of Hesiod's same time and period, perhaps a little before or after.
1: The value of this
0: digression is that these details may tell us that The memory of the Trojan War, as encapsulated in the texts of the Iliad and the Odyssey anyway, that memory is seen through a Theban or Boeotian lens. Furthermore, it establishes that the Iliad and the Odyssey and their memories of the Trojan War are not just traditions brought down to us through Athens or Sparta, which alternated in their domination of all Greece in the classical period, but rather this is a a tradition that was widespread throughout all the regions of Greece. Now, besides the primacy of of Boeotia and this catalog of ships, we discover another interesting fact. The ships all come from areas in mainland Greece and from the island of Crete, and they are all under the high king of Mycenae. This is a very Mycenaean sort of political connection, so it is easy to imagine an overlord of this large contiguous region, such as the king of Mycenae, ordering an expedition against an enemy both political and economic, such as the King of Troy would have been, controlling, as he did, overland routes to the east. The number of ships gathered is astounding, nearly 1,200. Just the Boeotian contingent of 50 ships contains 6,000 men, so the grand total number of troops and sailors would have probably been something like 100,000 or more, a huge army for the time period, so big that, Many have doubted the reality of this navy and army, or at least the reality of this accounting of it. The captains and kings given here are a laundry list of Greek heroes. Some of them are Argonauts or sons of Argonauts from the Greek myth about Jason and the Golden Fleece. Many of them are descended from gods, such as Achilles. Certainly, when these heroes and warriors of renown arrived on the beaches near Troy, they hoped for a brief engagement, followed by victory, conquest, and pillage but the war ended up being longer than they intended or hoped. They were not even able to begin the war on time. The first gathering of ships and men took place at the Boeotian coastal city of Aulis. That's A-U-L-I-S. After a sacrifice to Apollo, a snake was observed leaving the altar of sacrifice and eating a bird and her nine chicks in a nearby tree. And then the snake turned to stone A prophet accompanying the Greek force interpreted this to mean that Troy would not fall until the tenth year of war. If only they could start the war. Shortly after this prophecy, the entire Allied fleet was scattered in a sea storm. The damage was such that they were not able to gather again for eight more years. Only then are they able to sail successfully to Troy and commence hostilities. The war lasted ten years, but you should not strain yourself trying to imagine how a city like Troy might have withstood ten years of siege because it was not a siege in the medieval or modern sense in which a town is completely cut off from the outside world and the besieged population must live on stored food and water. Instead, the Greek army is stationed outside of Troy, yes, for most of ten years, but they are in no way encircling the city, and they often have to send off large numbers of their warring body to find more food and other supplies, raiding the surrounding countryside and temporarily weakening their besieging force. When you consider this army of the Greeks, remember that all about the sprawling camp are flocks and herds of cattle and their stores of loot and food— And indeed, the the Iliad begins with a dispute over a woman captured in a recent raid during the ninth year of the war. Now armies such as those created by the people of this time and place, the Aegean Sea in the 2nd millennium BC, they were not particularly well suited to effective sieges. Nowhere in the text of the Iliad will we hear of siege engines, artillery, or military methods designed to undermine the integrity of city walls. No, the soldiers of the Greek army ride in chariots and are armed with spears and swords and bows. They are a field army, ready to do battle in ordered ranks. Much of their time is spent merely sitting outside Troy, only becoming active when the Trojans come out to meet them in battle, to rid themselves of this armed nuisance sitting outside their walls. They also occasionally make defensive earthworks or engage in athletic games to pass the time and to amuse themselves or to commemorate the death of a fallen comrade. In fact, most of the so-called War of Troy really consists of armed campaigns by smaller contingents of the army against the surrounding countryside, seizing farms and small towns and even islands near the Straits of Dardanelles and further south in the Aegean Sea, making off with food and slaves and money captured there. The army only is really gathered in full at the very beginning of the war and during the ninth year, when the events of the Iliad occur. And those events do not include the end of the war, but rather culminate merely in the death of Hector, son of Priam, and in the disturbing mistreatment of his body by Achilles, and the pathetic pleadings of Hector's grieving father Priam. The Iliad is, among other things, essentially the story of this final confrontation between Hector and Achilles. I will leave the details of that confrontation to the next episode, but without spoiling the ending, I think it is obvious to all listeners by now that. The Greeks win, that Achilles is victorious in that battle. Now, after the events of the Iliad, the war continues, each side with fewer of the original heroes that began the war. New heroes have to step up and lead the battle, and others, like Odysseus, continue to contribute as they always have. An Amazon queen shows up with an Amazon army to assist Priam, king of Troy, shortly after all of these things. I mentioned earlier that the timelines of Greek myth are often hard to follow. This is another example. The Amazon queen is named Penthesilea. She and her army fight alongside the Trojans for some time, but eventually Penthesilea is killed in battle, and according to one version of the story, her eyes are gouged out before death. Now, this Penthesilea had a sister named Hippolyta, who was the previous queen of the Amazons, and this same Hippolyta was involved with Heracles in one of his adventures, and as his lover. Other myths also make her a contemporary of Theseus. Thus, the Trojan War becomes another of many events, nearly all simultaneous with some of the prime stories of Greek mythology, as well as the founding of Athens by Theseus. And most Greek myth just seems to inhabit some strange bubble of time and space prior to recorded history, just prior to the Dark Ages that followed the Bronze Age collapse, a bubble in which a series of events that might seem to require generations. All happen in one circular timeline, all the adventures of the gods and the various heroes happening in one mixed-up timeline with no beginning, no end. The set of myths concerning the end of the Trojan War are just as confused and interlocking. All seem to agree that Achilles dies before taking the city, though the circumstances and timing differ. The largest consensus seems to agree that Achilles battles a hero from the Trojan side by the name of Memnon who was actually a king that had come up from Africa to assist King Priam, his friend. Achilles kills Memnon, and the battle carries on right up to the city of Troy, which Achilles enters during the confusion of battle. Once inside, he is killed. According to perhaps the most popular version of his death, it is Paris himself who shoots Achilles with a poisoned arrow. Now, Achilles' heel is a famous component of this story, but only in some versions is Achilles struck in this part of his anatomy. In another version of this story, he is knifed in the back, but certainly the story of Paris striking Achilles in his heel has captured popular memory because in one myth about the infancy of Achilles, his mother holds him by the heel to dip him in the river Styx and thus make him immortal. Only the place where she holds him, his left heel, according to the story, remains mortal and vulnerable. But this is just one story about Achilles that is not in any way part of the core myth. For example, in the Iliad, Achilles is wounded in the elbow by a Trojan warrior during battle before the walls of the city. Homer does not seem concerned about any legend concerning the vulnerability of Achilles' heel. Regardless, Achilles is slain, and the Greeks remain outside the city, the war still unfinished. Another great battle ensues around the body of Achilles. Ajax, son of Telamon, stands protectively before the slain hero's corpse, fending off all the Trojan attackers. With soldiers of this time, capturing not just the body of a slain enemy leader, but also taking his armor, were matters of prime importance. For example, in the Iliad, Achilles' lieutenant, Patroclus, goes into battle wearing the armor of Achilles for reasons I will get into in the next episode. Patroclus is slain and a huge battle takes place around his body. The Trojans are eventually successful in getting away with the armor, but the Greeks retrieve the body of Patroclus. When Achilles himself dies in battle, the same thing occurs. Odysseus and Ajax manage to save both the body and the arms and armor of Achilles. After funeral games are completed for the dead Achilles, the survivors must decide who will inherit Achilles' battle gear Ajax or Odysseus? According to one tradition, Odysseus is chosen to receive the arms. In a bizarre sequelae to all this, Ajax becomes enraged and spurred to murder by this rejection. Desiring to kill Agamemnon and Menelaus and other fellow Greeks, he is confused by Athena into thinking that some of the army's cattle are his comrades. He slaughters many of these livestock before coming to his senses. Then, in his grief and embarrassment, Ajax, son of Telamon, kills himself by falling on his sword and another hero passes out of the world before the still undefeated walls of Troy. So the ninth year of the war passes, and the tenth year comes. Various Greek heroes undertake a number of adventures, which include retrieving Achilles' son Neoptolemus, so that he might fight in the war with them. Odysseus gives the boy his father's arms and armor. Also, during this late period of the war, Paris is killed when a Greek shoots him with the fabled bow of Heracles, And Odysseus and Diomedes steal the Trojan Palladium and bring it back to the Greek camp. This Palladium was a statue or image of Athena, apparently, and sacred to the Trojans. Its retrieval was prophesied to be a precursor to the fall of Troy. In capturing this image, Odysseus dresses as an old beggar man to infiltrate the Trojan city. And this is not the last time that Odysseus will use this kind of trickery to get his way. Ultimately, the trickery of Odysseus brings a final end to the war. It is this Ithacan Basilius who conceives the idea of the Trojan horse. I will relate the details of that escapade when we study the Aeneid during the Roman series. That book contains the only extant and complete version of the end of the city of Troy, but most listeners probably understand the basic reference to the Trojan horse anyway. The Greeks hide soldiers inside the false gift of the hollow Trojan horse, and these warriors emerge when the city sleeps and helped the army outside the gates to enter the city and begin the apocalyptic looting and pillaging of Troy. During the sacking of Troy, the lesser Ajax, as previously described, raped a Trojan princess and was shamed by his fellow Greeks for this. Odysseus actually wanted him to be executed. However, before we begin to confuse ourselves into thinking that our favorite heroes from the past shared in our own modern values, we should take note of the circumstances. Rape by victorious soldiers was taken for granted by these men. What was shameful about the act of Ajax the Lesser was that he raped a woman who was currently clinging to a statue of Athena, which should have earned her mercy in the eyes of the ancients. This was a widely shared value in the ancient world. For instance, in the Bible, men who had done wrong might try to secure mercy by clinging to an altar. Thus we come to better understand why Odysseus, who himself was not afraid to sack a city and steal away with women, why Odysseus would be upset by this rape, dedicated as he was to Athena. <coughs> now, Ajax the, lesser, Ajax the Lesser escapes immediate punishment for this rape and violation of custom, but he dies on the way home to Greece, as I described earlier. Indeed, getting home after the war is a difficult endeavor for most of the Greek heroes, one way or the other. And the overall aftermath of the war, both in Greek legendary memory and in historical reality, is dreadful to say the least. Much of this will be related in the future episode on the Odyssey, when Menelaus has a chance to speak about his own misadventures after the war. And more will be learned when we come to classical Greece and read the plays written by Aeschylus, Sophocles, and others about this tumultuous episode and their own shared history. In the next two episodes, I will look at the two great epic poems about the Trojan War and its heroes, the Iliad and the Odyssey. These books, and the war that forms the background behind their narratives, are important historical and religious matters for the Greeks. When we consider this ancient war, we must remember that there is more than just a historical or pseudo-historical narrative event going on here. Later Greeks will treat the events of the Trojan War, even many that may seem trivial to us, with a supernatural focus the words and deeds of heroes like Odysseus and Achilles and others become imbued with spell-like powers and are used in mystical ceremonies for over a thousand years afterward, all the way into the Middle Ages, actually. And we should not consider this such a strange result. While many people today exist in an essentially non-religious cultural atmosphere in the West, any of us who grew up even in a mildly religious household have experienced the same reverence for certain texts the same perception of magic even if we do not accept that term as a description because just like the ancient greeks recited passages from the iliad and the odyssey as incantations to heal injuries or bless people or their endeavors consider how christians use biblical passages in baptisms and marriages or how they might bless their food or use biblical language before a journey or consider the rite of the catholic mass celebrated every day of the year except good friday all around the world in which the priest must recite very specific words from the scriptures to bring about the transubstantiation of the bread into the Eucharist. So the working of magic, or whatever you prefer to call it, with revered texts like the Iliad and the Odyssey should not surprise us at all. We are still doing this today. But anyway, now the war is over. It began with a wedding, a celebration among the gods, and it ended in a political disaster among men. You may have noticed steps in the progression of violence in the matter, away from the gaiety of the marriage ceremony and toward the bloodthirsty massacre awaiting the heroes at the end of all things for the people of Troy. At the beginning, there were threats. Return the woman or suffer the consequences. But could even the offended Greek kings have imagined the result of their intentions? Once engaged in battle, the savagery of war was given full force. Even in this summary, You may have noticed the incredible viciousness of men at war i began the episode with achilles final words to hector before he slayed that trojan hero in the text of the iliad we will later see the cruelty of war played out on the corpse of hector in unbelievable fashion and what about the gouging out of the eyes of the amazon queen and ajax being moved to slaughter his comrades the escalation of brutality is disturbing not just to our modern sensibilities the Greeks of classical times were also upset by these barbaric deeds, and sentiments. When we read their plays about the Trojan War, about its heroes and its aftermath, about the poor captives of Troy brought back to slavery in Greece, we will see many characters express concern about these atrocities, showing us that such fine sent- sentiments are not characteristic only of those of us who live in the modern world, but that even the ancients possess these feelings, this emotional discernment for right and wrong a respect for proportion and retribution, and a desire for peace and forgiveness. In fact, even in the Iliad, rock-solid pillar of examples for brutal manliness that it is, even in the pages of the Iliad, we will find this recollection of kindness, of simple respect for humanity, particularly in passages about Hector, which are surprisingly full of admiration for the Trojan hero. Though you might expect such a jingoistic text like the Iliad to deride the Trojans, instead, The Iliad presents the Trojans as honorable and valiant, and there is a definite subtext in the book that casts a shadow on the actions of Achilles. But we will come to the Iliad in the next episode. Now that the great struggle is over, now that Troy has paid the full measure of revenge, let us depart from the shores of Anatolia, like the Greek heroes in the aftermath of war, raising their tattered sails to catch the wind and leave behind the smoking ruins of a great civilization, and let us turn back toward mainland Greece, specifically perhaps to Boeotia, where, in the centuries to come, as social order declines and the world slips back into a chaotic, fragmented political order, traveling bards will compose great stories about this war and thrill audiences in village and town, and some great poet will, sometime in the 8th or ninth century BC, weave them all together into the Homeric texts that we now have, the Iliad and the Odyssey. These two books marvelously intact and complete are a gift from our past and they will tell us much more about just the martial adventures of warlike men who lived 3000 years ago they'll tell us much more than that but i'm getting ahead of myself again with this episode i hope that you've learned something about the trojan war that you did not know before i also hope that you feel closer to the greek roots of our own modern civilization If you want to dig deeper into this matter, I recommend that you visit my website at western-traditions.org. That's western-traditions.org. Check out the source lists and the recommended books advertised there. Don't forget to ask any questions you might have in the comment boxes, and if you can, help support the podcast through Patreon or PayPal. And until next time, thank you for listening to the Western Traditions Podcast.